I'll just say a few words about our special guests, Lynn and Asaf, today. Um, I've had the privilege to get to know them just a bit. Asaf, um, well, I'm going to let Lynn tell a little bit more about their, their ministry and the sport he excels in and has excelled in throughout his life, cricket. He was a semi-pro cricket player, and God has now opened the doors for him to use his passion, his love to reach many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Asaf is also an ordained pastor in our very presbytery of the EPC, and Lynn is a registered nurse who uh, went to college at Appalachian State University. Um, Lynn, come on up and tell us a bit about your ministry before Asaf comes, but would you join us again in welcoming Asaf and Lynn this morning? I will say that their two daughters, Emma and Leah, are not with him this morning, but are with family in South Carolina, but we are honored to have you with us, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all so much. Um, I have a couple of pictures that I wanted to show you. We have been partnering with River Oaks for the past six or seven years, and when we went out first to Pakistan with the EPCs, you put that first picture up of the Oh, look, so little and cute, and we almost had to threaten life and limb to get them to stand still uh, to get that first picture made. See, I'm grasping the little one by her shoulders to hold her still. Um, that just gives a little glimpse. We have two daughters. Leah is the oldest one, and Emma's the youngest one. Um, Leah was born in Pakistan uh, in 2007, and Leah has a little more of a tannish kind of skin. Emma was born in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and she has a little more whiter skin. And so growing up, the girls actually believed that brown people were born in Pakistan and the lighter skinned people were born in America. And so they, you know, as we traveled around the world, they would say, oh yeah, they were born here or they were born there. And uh, cute, fun girls, quick and uh, Almost, uh, you can go to the next picture. So since they're not here, I get to show you some more pictures of them when they cut up and they play around. So this is our most recent family picture. Leah's going into ninth grade or has begun ninth grade. Emma's in seventh grade. Um, and I homeschool them, um, which is a, always a, a fun adventure because I get to learn as they are learning too because I'm relearning all the things that you know we did in elementary or well, the class did in elementary school while I was in the principal's office. So I'm relearning more of those kind of stuff. So that's fun. You can show the next picture. We travel around Pakistan quite a bit, and they get to play around, and we do selfies, and they usually hate those. Um, and then we leave them with their own phones, and the next picture is when the personalities actually come out is when we're not around them. Um, and they get to play. So fun, loving girls. They have a blast in Pakistan. They, um, they do really well, and we, we couldn't be prouder. But today I really wanted to introduce you to Asif and give you... Um, Asif is a, a native Pakistani, born and raised in Pakistan, came to America 19 years ago, um, a U.S. citizen. What's really interesting about, about Asif's story is that he is fourth-generation Christian. So 150 years ago, someone sitting in a congregation similar to this felt the call to go to the Indian subcontinent 
to tell the Indians about Jesus. And that person, whether it was a single lady or a husband and wife team, came across Asaf's great-grandfather, who was a follower of the Sikh religion. And that encounter with him completely transformed his life. One contact completely transformed. And he changed. His family changed. Asaf's grandfather became a traveling evangelist riding on his bicycle 30 miles from his house preaching and teaching about Jesus. Asaf's father pharmacist by trade, became an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian church, traveled to hundreds of villages showing the Jesus film in Urdu and Punjabi. Asaf, an ordained pastor in the EPC church, now gathering uh, five, six hundred kids ages 12 to 40. Pakistan, you still get to be a kid and when you're 40, that's nice. Um, gathering them in groups and leading Cricket trainings, Bible studies, and prayer time on a daily basis, teaching them how to read scriptures, how to exposit scriptures, and how to take that, that knowledge back to their family and share it with them. One person 150 years ago felt God's nudging on their heart, left their home, went to the Indian subcontinent and shared Jesus. And four generations later, we are still seeing the fruit of that faithfulness. So as you're sitting here today, you think I'm one person. And sometimes we talk about what we see and hear right now. We don't really think about way off in the future of what our actions are going to mean 100 years from now or 200 years from now. But as you're thinking today, as you look into your community and you're thinking, it doesn't really matter if I share or what, what's it really going to matter. There is a domino effect. When you step out and you share Jesus with someone around you, it has the ability to change families' lives for generations, not just today, but an own growing uh, relationship with God. And so I want Asif to, to come up, and um, I, will, I will tell you, Asif is used to preaching for about like an hour, an hour and a half. So um, I'll stand up and give him the... It's all right. Are you, can, are you on? Okay. Can I have to turn this on? All right. All right. Thank you. Good morning. Grateful for River Oaks uh, inviting us. Um, uh, feel honored. I feel privileged to be here uh, for this uh, once-a-year event uh, that we can be part of this year. And we are grateful for your prayers and support, which is uh, a big encouragement. It's been an encouragement for us over the years. Um, <clears throat> The situation that we're in, um, it's really nice to, to see everyone, um, but the situation in the world as of early this year, as you all know, is not that good. 
we are faced with this pandemic that has completely altered our way of life. I've heard some people say that our life may never be the same again. I don't want to sound like a doomsday prophet, but I feel like there's an undercurrent. There's something going on more than what we can see with our eyes. For once, as you all are sitting, you're sitting far away from each other. You're sitting six feet apart at least. You have masks on, which is good to see. I commend you for that. But the situation is hardly ideal. There's something wrong with this picture. It almost feels surreal. I, in my wildest imagination, could not have imagined being here and being in just in the church in general, with everybody split apart with masks on. And whether we put on a a good face, whether we uh, have a good attitude about it, there's something churning inside of us. We don't want to be sick. We don't want to cause anybody else to get sick. We don't know how long our job is going to last. The economy has taken a hit. Worldwide, this pandemic has really caused a huge upset. So much so that when we were first invited to this this event by uh, Brother Wes, um, I think roughly about six months ago, um, we did not know if we were coming back to the States this year. Usually our summers are here, and we at that time were going through total lockdown in Lahore, Pakistan. We live in a city of 13 million people, so you can imagine it's hard to to socially distance, and uh, very, very strict measures were in place that you couldn't leave your house without a mask on. You couldn't go to the grocery store. And I remember at one time, uh, I I mean, it happened regularly, When we even brought the groceries, we were sanitizing our groceries. For six weeks, our airspace was closed, and this invitation, I think, came during that time, and uh, there wasn't uh, even a single airplane in the sky. We're in a big city, so seeing airplanes all day long is kind of, uh, it's a given. It was very eerie that we, um, there wasn't even a cargo plane up in the skies. This is just to kind of remind us of the realities that are in place. These have been, uh, even though these realities are real and they have affected us in a very deep way, this is not the first time the human race has gone through a very, very trying time. This is not the the first time what we considered sacred has been challenged. Even our own beloved churches, the places that very symbolize the very relationship we have 
with God, our faith, it seems to be challenged. It seems to be under threat. Why does God allow that? Where is God in all of this? Why does he allow things that symbolize him, even those, to be threatened? Well, before I answer that question, I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. It's a story about a city. It's about a builder, a builder of walls, a civil engineer. I want to tell you about the city of Jerusalem. And before I get into that story, I want to go to today's passage. If you have your Bibles with us, you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, if you would Uh, prefer listening, I'll be reading from the ESV. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting from verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in the Susa, in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules uh, that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen's queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. This story starts in an anticlimactic way. The city of David, the city named Jerusalem, which at the pinnacle of its time, about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, symbolized the Israelite faith in Yahweh. This was a city where the great King David and Solomon, the very wise king who established Jerusalem as a capital for Israel, during his era, the kingdom expanded into the surrounding areas. These were the good days. This was about a thousand years before Christ. And God had given a command to the Israelite people that if you are unfaithful, that I will punish you, that I will, you will pay for what you do. And so it happened that they, they did not follow God's commandments. And what ended up happening is that the kingdom split. And as they split, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, um, the ten tribes up in the north formed their own kingdom. The two tribes on the south, they, they had their own kingdom by the name of Judah, where Jerusalem is. Assyrians came up from the north 
and took over the northern kingdom. And the Syrians were one of those people who had been challenged by Israel in the past, and so they had a score to settle. They wanted to blot out the history. And so they systematically, they came and they were ruthless. They broke down symbols of the Jewish faith. They destroyed their infrastructure. And they took captive the people that lived there. Well, a few years later, as the Assyrians are kind of losing their uh, superpower status, another superpower comes up. And that's the Babylonians. The Babylonians came and took over the southern kingdom. And just like the Assyrians, they were just as ruthless. They took over the city of Jerusalem. They brought down, broke the wall. Now, wall is very symbolic. You know, if you think of ancient cities, breaking a wall is more than just breaking stone or breaking bricks, whatever they had made it with. It was a symbolic gesture that your defenses are no longer there, and we have broken them. And they burnt the gates. The Babylonians came and finished off where the Assyrians left off, and they decimated Jerusalem. Now we, are, we come, to, come to the book of Nehemiah, and we're about approximately 450 years before the birth of Christ. And we have this man who we are told is in the city, in the citadel of Susa. Citadels, as you all well know what they are, they're fortified palaces. And so this man finds himself in the courts of a king. But he's not just an ordinary slave. He's not an ordinary captive. We're not told how, but he has made it into the inner circle of the king. He's cupbearer. He's the one who tastes the king's food before it is offered to him. He's a close confidant of the king. He speaks to the king directly, the king of Persia. So after the Babylonians, as Persia is now becoming the superpower, Persia changes its strategy. It's, as it's trying to influence the countries around it, its policy about Israel has changed. It is not as ruthless as the Assyrians and the Babylonians. 
and their king, King of Persia, Cyrus, wants to send them, send the exiles back. And as the book before Nehemiah tells us, this um, exile coming back really happened through three instrumental men, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then we have Nehemiah. So as their policy is shifting, their outlook on, on the Israelite people has changed. And so the king is now um, more lenient. He wants, to be, he wants to send the exiles home, but there's still nothing for them to go back to. It's just rubble. And this story begins by us learning about one of the brothers of Nehemiah as they're returning from Judah. And it's remarkable to me that Nehemiah asks him how the city is doing. What business does a successful cupbearer in the king's inner circle, what, what need does he have to ask his brother how Judah is? It is probably safe to say that Nehemiah, with his own eyes, has probably not seen the city of Jerusalem with his eyes. It is more probable that his ancestors that were taken captive, his father has probably told him about the greatness of this city that once was. It is very probable that his father or grandfather told him about the great temple that once represented the glory of God, the presence of God in their very midst. And here is Nehemiah asking his brother, how's the city like? What are its inhabitants like? What are they... Are they happy? Are they sad? What's going on with them? And as his brother tells him, he tells him that the city's in a pretty miserable state. It's been devastated by past rulers, by past kingdoms. It's, but it's been decimated. There's nothing there. There's rubble. And the people that we call ours, the Jewish people, the word used here is shame. They're living in shame. And the scripture tells us that Nehemiah, after hearing this, sits down. You can kind of picture this in your head that it's broken his heart. It's broken his heart so much that he sits down and it tells us that he starts weeping. He doesn't just stop at that. 
as he's weeping, he starts. He says, I went to the God of heaven and I prayed. It is astonishing to me that in this relatively small book with 13 chapters, these words come over and over again. I went to the God of heaven and I prayed. If you remember one thing from today's sermon, I want you to remember those words. And I went to the God of heaven and I prayed. Even in the passage that I read, twice we've already seen it. So Nehemiah, with this heavy heart, with this broken heart, he, the scriptures are not clear whether he, it was really his intent to tell the king, but he is sad in front of the king. So much so that when he is in his presence, the king knows him pretty well, probably. And so the king inquires, what's wrong with you, Nehemiah? So Nehemiah tells him that how can I not be sad when the city of my forefathers, it lies in ruins. How can I not be sad? And as he tells his story, because the prayers that went before, it tells us right before he speaks to the king, he prays again to the God of heaven. He says that I was scared at first, but then he starts speaking. And the king says, what do you want me to do? said, allow me to go back so I can rebuild. Allow me to go back so I can take away the shame that I can remind my brothers of who God is and what their faith is. Brothers and sisters, what kind of faith does it take to have not even ever seen a city with your own eyes, yet work so hard for it? What kind of faith is that, that you're willing to put yourself in danger speaking with the king who could snuff you out like that? What kind of faith looks beyond the rubble? Friends, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to tell you a story, another story. It's a kind of faith that Joseph Damien possessed. In 1873, a young man by the name of Joseph Damien went to the islands of Hawaii, one of the islands named Molokai. Molokai has now become a tourist attraction, but back then, it was a leper colony. 
Nobody wanted to go there. He tried really hard to be away from there. And if you caught leprosy, they dropped you there and they said, see you later. And this man hearing the call went to the island of Molokai. And as he went there, he served there about 10 years before one day he was pouring tea for himself in a cup. And as he was pouring the cup of tea, it swirled around and it dropped on his foot. And to his amazement, he didn't feel it. He was just didn't know what was going on, so he poured some more to see why his foot was not feeling. It turned out that he himself had con uh, contracted leprosy. He continued to serve there five more years and went to be with the Lord. And as he is being prepared to be taken back to Britain, the people of Malachi beg the government, can we keep this man? Can we keep him? We want to bury him here because we want to remember him, his faith. They wouldn't let him, let them. At last they requested, if you're not going to leave him here, can you just give us, cut his hand and let us bury it here? And they finally agreed. And they buried that hand in Molokai for Joseph Damien because they said, this is a hand that brought us healing. If we look at this passage, I can't help but feel that Nehemiah really didn't have to do this. If you look at this passage carefully, there is no call. Nehemiah didn't have to ask his brother Hanani, what was going on in Jerusalem? Let's just say he was nosy. He could have just heard it and not done anything. He could have just gone home and, you know, prayed about it and started a Bible study group about Jerusalem. But I can't help feel that there's no compulsion for him to do this. And this reminds me of another one of my favorite prophets, Isaiah. In one of our, you know, this is a, a much-loved passage by uh, global workers all around the world. Chapter 6, where Isaiah says, send me. Now, what's remarkable about that passage to me is that there is not even a specific call 
Isaiah says, send me, but nobody has directly asked him to go. If you look at that passage, there is a heavenly courtroom and God is sitting on his throne. And if you go back to the Hebrew, it says the same thing. If you go to the English, it says that I overheard the Lord. It was not like God said, Isaiah, will you please go? No. It was like Isaiah was a bystander. And he said, I heard, I overheard the Lord. And I said, send me. There's more in that passage, but the gist of the story is he said, send me, when nobody specifically asked him to go. So what is wrong with people who, what is wrong with that picture? Friends, the difference is the ones who hear that unspecific call are the ones who bear the nature of the call giver. The ones who hear that call are ones who resemble in nature, whose nature is that of the call giver. God himself changes our nature. He, it is his grace poured upon us that allows us to respond in such a way. And while there's no compulsion on the one who is hearing, Yet they hear the call. They hear the call because they know the nature of the call giver. And they say, send me. You know well of Mary of Bethany. Mary who poured the expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. There was no need for her to break this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. What was the reason? Any Pharisee of her day, any Pharisee, even the disciples knew more theology than her. They could have run circles around her with their theology. But friends... Mary could never forget that Jesus had freed her from the tyranny of the spirits that once lived inside of her. She could never forget. And the only way to express that gratitude was to buy something that was very valuable to her, that was very dear to her and break it upon the Savior's feet. 
Friends, what is, what is the most expensive thing that you've broken at, at your Savior's feet? I'm not talking about your finances. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it is your finances. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your high schooler saying, I want to go to, to Africa. I want to go to China. I want to go to Asia. Maybe it's your daughter that's in med school. And she's trying to figure out whether she wants to spend the rest of her life on the mission field. What's the most precious thing that you have ever broken at the feet of Jesus? See, friends, Nehemiah's heart was broken. It was broken by what breaks God's heart. Is our heart, has our heart ever been broken at the feet of Jesus? Have we ever, have we ever known what it is like to buy something very precious, to acquire it, and then to pour it out? at the feet of Jesus. You might think, what am I going to do in a mask? What am I going to do, you know, like my job? I don't even know if I have a job in six months. Well, friends, don't underestimate. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit that turns a cupbearer into the governor of Jerusalem, Judah. I want to end by a statement, by a quote by Richard Ellsworth Day. And this I want you to remember. He says, every golden era in human History proceeds from the devotion of a single individual. Every golden era in human history proceeds from the devotion of a single individual. This doesn't set aside the sovereignty of God. There are no bona fide mass movements. There are no bona fide mass movements. It may look that way. At the center of the column, there's always one person who knows his God and where God is going. At the center of the column, there is one person that knows his God and where God is going. Nehemiah, having never seen Jerusalem, he knew his God. And where God was going. Joseph Damien knew what broke God's heart. 
Mary of Bethany. She knew. She knew what was most precious to her. And she broke, broke it upon the feet of Jesus. I wonder if in Jesus' lifetime, any of the other disciples made him the f- same, feel the same thing that Mary of Bethany did. I know they all, except one, faced martyrdom. I wonder if they made Jesus' face smile with that kind of a response. Friends, you and I might feel there's no specific call. Nobody really called me. Nobody really called Nehemiah. Nobody asked him to ask Hanani how Jerusalem was. What is that Jerusalem to us? Well, friends, that Jerusalem is the kingdom of God that is all around us even now in this most trying time. We look at the gospel as Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a field. What do you see in a field? The farmer grows and he plants. There's pretty much nothing. Four days a week, nothing. Two, three weeks, still probably nothing. And then a little twig shows up. And in four months, that become the harvest. That become the very nourishment for many, many souls. Friends, whether you hear that call or not depends whether we have really seen him, whether we've really seen Jesus. Is it time that we ask, ask ourselves and God, what does Jerusalem look like? Where is your kingdom being built around me? Where is that place that I may partner with you? May God give us that heart that knows how to ask what Jerusalem looks like. God is not going to come hunting for us He's probably not going to even corner us like he did Jonah. I mean, sometimes he does. But most times, that call is nonspecific. But God knows our hearts. Isaiah. Isaiah didn't hear his name in that that discourse in chapter 6. But he overheard the Lord and said, send me. Friends, we are the hands and 
feet of Christ during this pandemic. We are the ones who have life poured into us, not so that we would become just filled with our, just full in us. That life was put in, in there that we would overflow. That those springs would overflow. It's time. It's time to go to our Lord and ask him, Lord, what are you asking me to do? What does Jerusalem look like around me? What is the state of Jerusalem? Yes, the situation is not that great. It's not good. But God has caused this for a reason. And we know this is going to bring glory to his name. Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to go with what our eyes see? Or by what? We know him to be the loving father, the loving father who is waiting at the door to greet the ones he's lost. And will we be the in-betweens? Will we break our heart at the feet of Jesus? Are we willing to break what is most precious to us at the feet of Jesus? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder through this wall builder named Nehemiah. That though, Lord, times are tough and it's hard to see with all the rubble, with all the all the things that are going on around us that make us discouraged, that make us uh, want to curl into ourselves even more. Lord, pour your spirit into your, in our hearts that we may know you, that we may know you like Nehemiah knew you, like Isaiah knew you, like Mary knew you, like Joseph Damien knew you, Lord. And Father, may the world around us. May the people that you have put around us experience the life of Jesus, the resurrected life of Jesus through us. Give us those hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.